Let's open our Bibles to Romans chapter 1. If you are visiting, we are currently in a series called Popular Deceptions of Our Day, of which there was lots of material to pick from for the series, but I had to narrow it down to nine specific topics. The premise of our series I announced last week as we began, and here it is, that it's actually an act of love to expose and wreck false beliefs that hold people captive and destroy lives. Let me say it one more time. This is not hate speech. It is actually an act of love to expose false beliefs, to wreck them, that are holding people captive and destroying lives, destroying families, destroying marriages. The popular deception we're going to focus on today is one of the most widespread, especially in the Protestant and Catholic world, and it is the myth, the deception, that God is only a God of love and not a God of wrath, or the deception that God is not a God of wrath. Popularized probably most recently in one of the best-selling books on the subject, Love Wins by Rob Bell, who argues along this line. To address this deception, we're turning to Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 1, in one of the most condensed, concentrated texts on the wrath of God. In fact, this is Paul's longest letter, and he spends the first three chapters outlining the depravity of mankind, the bad news before we get to the good news, which occupies then the rest of his book. This is not an easy section, but the issue is not, do I like a doctrine? There's lots of doctrines I probably would not naturally gravitate to, except of the clarity of God's Word. So the issue is not today, do I like this? Does it make me comfortable? The issue is always, what does the text say? What does God's Word have to say? I have to go back to that, no matter what the issue is, no matter what the moral issue is of the day or the theological issue is of the day, I always have to go back. If I profess Christ as Savior and allegiance to Him, what does His Word say? And Paul's argument here today is that we can't understand the gospel and our need for salvation apart from a knowledge of the wrath of God. In other words, before I can accept the good news, I have to be aware of the bad news. And that's the problem when I throw away the bad news. There's no more need and understanding then among the people for the good news. So we're going to dive into this section, one of the most detailed and concentrated on the subject. Paul's telling us two things from verses 18 down through verse 32. And we're simply going to follow the text. A lost art today for our culture as more and more of us are raised on screens and more and more of us are diverted and distracted all the time by screens to follow a text, to follow the words and the grammar and the context is increasingly a lost art. And yet this is what God inspired and so this is why we turn to it and follow Paul's argument. So two things Paul's going to show us from verses 18 down to verse 32. Number one, he's going to talk about God's wrath as it is revealed. And then secondly, He's going to give us the reasons behind that wrath, the why. So we have the what and we have the why this morning. So let's begin with the what, God's wrath revealed, verse 18, which is probably the most cogent, clear verse in the New Testament on the wrath of God. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who 
by their unrighteousness, or who in their unrighteousness, or some translations, who in their wickedness, are suppressing the truth and suppress it. So Paul starts to unfold the details of the gospel in Romans, and he begins with an extended discussion, chapters 1, 2, and 3, on the doctrine of sin and the wrath of God. The problem is the doctrine of the wrath of God goes against almost everything in our culture, and even in the culture of many churches. I was watching an interview with Ellen DeGeneres a number of years ago. She was asked, point blank, do you believe in God? She said, well, sure. Then she immediately added, I believe in a God of love, not wrath. She was very clear. Charles Darwin, most of you know the name, in his autobiography written just a couple years before he died, Charles Darwin was an atheist, and he wrote these words, I can hardly see how anyone ought to wish, ought to wish Christianity to be true. For if so, the plain language of the text seems to show that those who do not believe and this would include my father, my brother, and almost all my best friends, will be everlastingly punished. This is a damnable doctrine. Close quote. The words written about five to six years before he died. The original Greek word for wrath in verse 18 refers to a, um, a deep, settled, determined indignation. It's not a fly-off-the-handle anger, this is a, but it is a settled indignation anger towards all and a hatred towards all that is evil. Now, one of the misconceptions I heard about God's wrath growing up, and it is quite widespread, is this. You've probably heard something like this. Oh yeah, the God of the Old Testament. Yeah, he was mad. God of the New Testament is a God of love. You heard that before? That's a very common bifurcation of the issue. God of the Old Testament, God of judgment, wrath, God of New Testament, God of love. D.A. Carson, one of the best New Testament scholars on our planet, he said in his little book on the love of God, he said, actually, when you get to the New Testament, what's interesting is that God's wrath and love are both amplified, intensified, and ramped up, both his love and wrath. And this is nowhere more clear than the preaching and teaching of Jesus when it comes to God's wrath. In fact, in Jesus' most famous sermon, Sermon on the Mount, we come to verses like this. Anyone who calls his brother a fool will be in danger of the fire of hell. Matthew 5, 22. That's Jesus, the gentle shepherd. Or Matthew 7, 13 and 14. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the road that leads to destruction. And unfortunately, one of the greatest tragedies of our day are churches, seminaries, and clergy who are watering down both the love of God and the wrath of God and not teaching them accurately. I found it interesting that well over 60 years ago, seeing this trend, Dr. Richard Niebuhr, who taught at Yale Divinity School, not a friend of evangelical Christians in any sense, but a perceptive, honest liberal said this about the gospel of liberalism, theological liberalism. And he was saying it somewhat as a critique, but he also was in this mainstream. He said the gospel of theological liberalism is that a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of Christ without a cross. 
That's the gospel of liberalism, the theological gospel of liberalism. God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the work of a Christ without a cross. And yet, young people, kids, ladies and gentlemen, if Jesus is telling us the truth in Matthew 5 and Matthew 7, I believe he is. If he is telling the truth, then one of the most loving things I can do is to share that with those I care about. First of all, to believe it, but then to share the truth. Why? Because you share a warning because you love somebody, right? You don't say to your two-year-old, don't stick a knife into a light socket because you hate them. You say it because why? You love them. You don't say to your three-year-old, don't run in the street chasing the ball because you hate them. You say it because you love them. You don't say to your five-year-old, don't get too near the cliff because you hate them. You say it because you love them. One of the most honest things we can do that it, is if something's true, especially something like the wrath of God, is to teach it clearly, both in our personal lives, in our churches, from our pulpits, because the Bible teaches it. And to remind ourselves and our children and our grandchildren and those we care about that a primary reason Jesus even came and gave his life was to rescue believing sinners from the wrath of God. If you have any doubt, just turn over a couple pages to chapter 5 of Romans, verses 8 and 9, where we are told explicitly of God's love for us in rescuing us from wrath through the cross of Christ. In fact, this is a verse, some, a little bit like John 3.16, where you have mentioned love and wrath in a very short space Romans chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Just follow Paul's wording in what he's saying. But God shows his love for us. Now, most of us, if we think God's showing his love for us, we're we're thinking of warm feelings of affection. And, And that's certainly part of it. But God shows his love for us in that while we were sinners, still sinners, Christ died for us. So there's his love declared through the death of Christ. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him, by Christ, from the wrath of God. From the wrath of God. So primary reason that Jesus came and fulfilled the law and then gave his life, rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, is to rescue sinners from the wrath of God if they will repent and believe in him. So that's the wrath of God revealed, the announcement that God's wrath is revealed throughout the world to all cultures and mankind. Now, secondly, this morning, Paul's going to give us the why behind wrath. And he gives us two reasons why God's wrath is revealed. So we're just going to take these right in order. Reason number one, The first reason God's wrath is revealed against mankind, all of us, against the world, against all cultures, all peoples of all time, is because we suppress the truth about God. We're truth suppressors. Again, verse 118, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men 
who by their unrighteousness suppress, active verb, present tense, so who are suppressing the truth. So ungodliness, unrighteousness, and we're suppressing the truth. Those are hooked together. So the Bible's telling us by nature we're truth suppressors and we're spin doctors. All of us are. Some of us are really good at it, but I can be very good at it. You can be very good at it, but all of us by nature are spin doctors. We're truth suppressors. Why? Paul tells us why. Because we're born in sin, we're slaves to sin by nature, we're blind, dead in sin, corrupt, defiant, rebellious. And in our natural state, we are moral rebels. We hate and fight against authority over us. Even explains how some can sit in a worship service week after week, listening to preaching, and tune it out. You're either spending time on your phone going over things on the internet or thinking about something else last week or what's coming up this week. Some of you are doing it right now. And we're not listening to what God has said. And it, now, this raises a question. He says we're suppressing truth and we're doing it because of our wickedness. The question then, next question is, well, what is the truth that we're suppressing? Well, Paul answers that in verses 19 and 20. Here it is. We know why we're doing it, because of our sinfulness and our depravity and our rebellion. Here's what the truth is that we're suppressing. Verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. That's us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived. It's not foggy. It's clear because he made it clear. How long has it been going on? ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made and the result is so they are without excuse. There's a very clear logic that is driving the wording in this text. So what's being suppressed is information about God's eternal power and divine nature. It's been clearly revealed, clearly perceived because God made it clear. It's been going on since creation and the result is that human beings are without excuse. Dr. Michael Behe, some of you may know the name, a biochemist at Lee University, wrote a book a number of years ago called Darwin's Black Box. Became a bit of a bestseller. As a biochemist, he said this, he said, the more we study life at the molecular level, the more it screams out, designed. Designed. See, the theory of evolution is the lie that random processes produce the beauty and the complexity around us, and it removes God out of the picture. That's why Charles Hodges, the great Princeton theologian, in a little booklet he wrote back in the 1920s, what is Darwinism? After he finished explaining what Darwinism was, he finished up by saying, what is Darwinism? It is atheism. Because at its core, it's removing God from the picture and trying to explain all the beauty and complexity around us by mutation and natural selection, not by God. Now, Romans 1, Paul is telling us there's no such thing as an honest atheist. I mean, that's what he's saying here in these first few verses. 
In other words, all human beings know if you stand out on a starry night, if you look out at the mountains or the oceans, as you look up, as you look around, every human being knows there's an all-powerful God. In fact, the revelation of God coming through nature is so clear, according to verse 20, no one can say, I didn't know. Not the most remote tribal person could ever stand before God someday and say, I didn't know. It says right here, every single human being who's ever lived, standing in the light of God's revelation of himself through creation, is without excuse. Now, theologians refer to the doctrine of God's uh, knowledge coming through creation or nature. They have two different names for it, either natural revelation or general revelation. Those are man-made titles, but they're helpful. What does it mean? Well, the Bible talks about two sources of information, special revelation, general revelation. Special revelation would be visions in the Bible or times that God spoke or Jesus himself or the Bible. Information we can't have except God chose to reveal it in a special way. General revelation or natural revelation is information about God that comes through creation or through nature. And we call it general revelation for two reasons. Number one, because the content of the information coming through nature is general, and the target audience is general. It's all mankind. So general revelation means all people in all cultures know, just by looking around, there is an all-powerful master designer. But there is a limitation to general revelation. What is it? It's limited in scope. It cannot lead someone to salvation. It can only indict them because it can only lead them to a general knowledge of the Creator. See, the reason general revelation cannot lead us to salvation is because of what it does show us. What does it show us? Well, general revelation highlights God's existence, His power, His strength, His grandeur. That's what general revelation points us to and screams that out. But general revelation can tell us nothing about his holiness or his demands of the moral law or my sinfulness or my need for a savior or the cross or the substitutionary atonement of Jesus on the cross. None of that is available in general revelation. I have to have special revelation for that. And hence the summons of Romans is really where Paul at the, towards the end of his letter says this, Yes, the information about God coming through nature is very clear about God the Father, His eternal power, divine nature, but it does not tell us about the cross and our need for a Savior. Hence, Paul summons in Romans, toward the end of his letter, chapter 10, what does he say? He's very clear. How can they hear unless someone preaches to them? Takes the gospel. Jesus said a similar thing, John 14, he said, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. No one, no one can come to the Father except through me. Some people view that and think that that's very narrow, that's very restrictive. I'm just thankful there's a way left, and Jesus is that way. So the first reason, let's mark it well, young people hear this, the first reason why God's wrath is revealed, according to the Bible, is because we are truth suppressors. We're spin doctors. We look out, but because of our innate rebellion 
in moral depravity in our own nature, as we're born sinners, we are blind to the beauty and the glory of God in creation because we can't see it clearly. And beyond that, we can know nothing of the cross and redemption by simply looking at nature. I can stare at a mountain all day, which I love to do, and I can be reminded there's a God and He's all-powerful, but I'm going to be reminded of nothing about my own internal depravity and my need for a Savior and the message of the cross. So the first reason we suppress truth because of our wickedness. Second reason Paul gives us for why God's wrath is revealed is because not only are we suppressors, we're idolaters. This is the second reason, because we turn to counterfeit gods. So a second reason for God's wrath is that sinners not only are suppressing truth, but after this we're actually elevating and turning to counterfeit gods. Let me give you another words. In other words, the person who refuses to worship God doesn't become an atheist, they become an idolater. And most of the things that are moved into the slot of idolatry aren't necessarily intrinsically evil. Most of them are good things elevated to the wrong position of worship. What are some of the most common idols both throughout history and even today? I'll tell you some of the most common. Food. It's a huge one in every culture. Sex. Children. Health. A spouse. Travel. Religion. Career. Sports. Leisure. Money. Pleasure. You can go on and on. You take any of those which in themselves are good and you elevate them to the wrong spot and you begin to give that specific thing ultimate worship that becomes an idol. That's why Paul is so clear in verses 21 to 23 that when we turn away from the knowledge of God, we don't become an atheist, we become an idolater. Verse 21, 22, and 23, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God. There's more suppression. Or give thanks to Him. What, what, what happened instead? They became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. And exchange, this is the great exchange, the glory of the immortal God. For what? For images, idols resembling mortal man, birds, animals, and creeping things. A lot of you know the name Sigmund Freud. The brilliant, he was brilliant. Psychotherapist in Austria. Unfortunately, he was an atheist. He claimed human beings invented God because they were so afraid of nature. So Freud's basic argument, and he argued this a number of different ways, but his basic argument was this. Primitive man was so terrified by nature, by the tsunamis and earthquakes and fires and tornadoes and all that, that he invented, mankind, he invented God, that primitive man invented God or the gods to give him a sense of comfort. Problem is, when you go to a text like Romans 1, it says the exact opposite. It teaches that human beings were so terrified by the existence of God that they suppressed the knowledge of, God, of the true God and instead turned to nature and idols. And the reason is idols aren't nearly as demanding or judgmental as the living God and the Holy One of Israel. Idols have a way of not making any demands on your life. And so the argument from Freud to the Bible is the exact opposite. Mankind did not invent God because he was afraid of nature. Mankind turned away from God, 
turned to nature to idols to protect him from a knowledge of the living God. Now, at this point, it's common to ask a very normal question. It is this. Okay, so somebody isn't worshiping the true and living God. What, what if they are seeking, although the Bible says nobody seeks God, but what if, okay, let's use the word sincere. What if somebody is sincere in worshiping something else rather than Jesus? Doesn't that count for something? Have you ever asked that? Yeah, I have. I've wondered that before. Especially if you've traveled at all or been in, say, a mosque or a Buddhist temple or a Hindu temple or, or, or know people who are in other world religions and you see them and they seem like they're very gracious and sincere people, which they are frequently. And you ask, well, doesn't sincerity count for something? Well, you've got to go back to the text. Paul's answer to that question in verses 22 and 23. Worshiping a false god or worshiping idols... Even sincerely, number one, we're not saved by sincerity. And secondly, it doesn't excuse God's wrath. Why? Because revelation of Him in nature is so clear. So actually, not only does worshiping an idol or a false god not help us, it actually compounds our guilt because we're doing it in a flood of clear information about God who is all-powerful. And again, sincerity, no matter how sincere, isn't what saves us. Romans, I mean, uh, Psalm 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a person, but in the end, it leads to death. Now, the rest of Romans 1 describes then a very tragic downward spiral of both individuals and cultures that have turned away from God, suppressed the truth about God, and chased anything else but. Three times, Paul's going to say between verses 24 and 28 that God gave them over. This is a very disturbing section, friends. So what is this path? There's at least three steps mentioned for either individuals, cultures, or nations that have turned away from God and begin down this other path where God finally says, okay, you're done with me, go your way. And then everything starts falling apart for that person or that culture or that country. What are those three steps? Well, the first step down the path of depravity is when a person or a nation tolerates sexual sin. Verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up or turned them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. So the step, first step down the path of depravity to God turning a person or a culture over to themselves is when there's a toleration of sexual sin, either in my own life or the life of our culture or country. The second step down the path of moral disintegration is a toleration of homosexual behavior, verses 26 and 27. For this reason, God, here's the second time, gave them up or turned them over to dishonorable passions. Now, two things are going to be mentioned, lesbianism and male homosexuality. Both are going to be mentioned here. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women 
and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. So step number one of moral disintegration is tolerating sexual sin, verse 24. Second step down the path of moral disintegration is a toleration of homosexual behavior. The final step of just God turning someone over or a culture over to itself is celebration of evil and moral perversion. And that is in verse 32. It's not enough to tolerate. We're even seeing that today. We're being told we have to celebrate moral perversion. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only, not only did they do them, but gave approval to those who practice them. They're encouraging it. Now, very interesting, the Bible tells us that God's judgment then isn't, hear this, isn't just a future thing. It is. There is a doctrine of hell that's very real and the day of final judgment, but follow what Paul's doing here. He's telling us that not only is God's judgment something in the future, but actually it's something that begins in this life. Paul is telling us that the sins being described in verses 24 down to verse 32, namely the spread of sexual perversion, homosexual behavior, violence, crime, rebellion against authority, these are signs that God's judgment has already begun. You see? on a person, on a culture, on a nation. And that is why Christians in our country today should be terrified and should pray like never before because we are in that final step today and have moved into it rapidly in just the last few years where we're being told it's not enough to tolerate it. We need to celebrate it. And if you don't celebrate it, you will be crushed. And we're going to need to be, for believers in Christ, men and women of compassion and courage if we're going to stand up for the gospel in Christ. All right, before we go to the Lord's table this morning, what is Romans 1 calling us to do? And I want you to love your attention here. Young people, kids especially, hear this. There's at least three very strong summons coming from Romans chapter 1. Number one, and this one's going to sound counterintuitive, remember that God's wrath is part of the good news of the gospel. You may say, what? It is. How so? Well, let me give you an example. One of my favorite writers, Mirzlav Wolf, is a theologian from Croatia. He originally was a theological liberal. He's a brilliant academic mind. He teaches today at Yale Divinity School. As a theological liberal, he lived through the Bosnian genocide. As he watched that thing unfold, and I had a friend who was a missionary in Bosnia at the time and watched it. Becky and I were in Bosnia at one point soon after the genocide, and we still could see the remnants of war. It's just a war-torn country. Mirzlav Wolf said this, he said, you know, I used to believe God was not a God of wrath, but then I lived through the Bosnian genocide and I realized that now I would rebel against God if he wasn't a God of wrath and judgment. He asked, well, why? Because he said, any, any God who simply ignored genocide 
in the afterlife, or child abuse, or rape, or torture, or murder, or adultery, would not be a loving God. A loving God sets, the, sets things straight. A, a good judge doesn't just turn a blind eye to the evils of the world. And so in his small book, Free of, uh, Free of Charge, he says, the good news of God's wrath is that God's wrath flows out of His love for humanity. In other words, God isn't wrathful in spite of being love, Mirzloff Wolf said. God is wrathful because He is love. And one day He will set all things straight as a good judge, as a loving God has to do. So that is why the good news of God's wrath is part of the gospel. Secondly, remember that warning is a gift. Back to my illustrations. You warn young children. You warn toddlers. You warn teenagers. Not because you hate them. You warn them because you love them. Hebrews 3.15. Here's a warning. Today when you hear His voice, we have read Scripture. We have heard God's voice. Today, when you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as Israel did when they rebelled. Ladies and gentlemen, it's not just unbelievers that harden their hearts. Christians harden their hearts. Now, the difference is if somebody's truly converted, they will repent. But I know that I can easily slip into a hard heart with the right conditions very quickly. But this is challenging any of us. Remember, warning is a gift, especially warning about ultimate judgment. It's a gift. God warns us because He is love. And He wants to warn people what's to come if they don't repent and believe in His Son. Lastly, third summons. Remember that God's wrath can draw us to His love. Remember that God's wrath can draw us to His love. What's the most famous verse in the Bible? that mentions both his love and judgment in one verse, John 3.16. So I'm going to recite it very slowly because it's one we whip through. Here it is. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes might not, what? Perish, there's the wrath, but have eternal life. So God's wrath can drive us to His love. I want to close with a short true story about His wrath and love. In 1856, there was a 22-year-old in London. It was a brand new pastor. He came to a church that sat 1,200 and there were only 200 people in the auditorium. They called him when he was 20 years old to that church. By age 22, the church had outgrown the facility. Well over 1,500 people were packing this place up. So the leaders said, we need to move off site and build a bigger church campus. So young Charles Spurgeon and his leaders and the whole flock moved off site for the next several years. They end up building the largest church campus in the world several years later on Elephant and Castle. It's still there today. 
Metropolitan Tabernacle. While they were off site, they met at the Surrey Gardens Music Hall, which could hold over 10,000 people. So Spurgeon is 22 years old, 1856. The first Sunday, October 19th, 1856, that they're in this place, the evening service, they had morning and evening services at the Surrey Gardens Hall. The first night, they had an estimated 14,000 people that jammed into the Surrey Gardens Music Hall. And on that very first night of meetings, while Spurgeon was praying from the balcony, is a very well-documented story, to this day they don't know who did it, somebody yelled out, fire, very loudly. And there was absolute panic. And the place erupted in pandemonium. Seven people were killed and trampled to death, and another 28 went to the hospital with serious injuries. Spurgeon was traumatized. He was brutalized in the London newspapers for the next week or two. But he came back within a week or two, started preaching again. It haunted him the rest of his life, changed his preaching the rest of his life. But he came back as thousands upon thousands jammed into the Surrey Gardens Music Hall for the next several years. And in 1859... The last year they met there, there was a revival among the flock. And Spurgeon preached a series of revival sermons in the midst of that. And on July 17th, 1859, 163 years ago this morning, he preached a sermon, a revival sermon called The Story of God's Mighty Acts. And here's how he closed that sermon 163 years ago this morning. You know there is a hell. Conscience tells you that God will punish you for your sin. Depend on it. You will find no happiness trying to stifle God's spirit. And then here comes his love for the people. Oh, sinner, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Today, lay hold of Christ. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all who put their trust in him. Charles Spurgeon, 163 years ago today. Same gospel, same message, same summons.